0: When I said things I really felt it made people sad, you know, I would say, I really have, I really have no idea if this is going to be enough or um, I'm so scared right now. And in my gentle defense, like I didn't actually even have a place where it would even make sense to say those kinds of things in the medical system in which I was spending so much of my time doctors. And I've met so many beautiful doctors since, but the doctors I had would just give me this sort of like blink blink, Every time I was trying to say something like, "Hey, just like just checking, am I gonna, am I gonna die by the end of the summer?" and you know, I would obviously like tear up, but the tearing up made everyone look like they wanted to crawl into a tar pit or push me <laughs> in a different one. So I found there there were very few places where I could even practice saying things that didn't feel morbid or culturally unacceptable.
1: welcome to how to be sad the podcast about how we can all get happier by learning to be sad better based on the book of the same name which is out now everywhere each week on the podcast i'll be joined by a special guest sharing their story kate bowler is a new york times best-selling author host of the podcast everything happens and her ted talk has been viewed more than six million times She's also a professor of history and has a new book, No Cure for Being Human, a must-read for anyone wanting to find out more about how to be sad well. Because when Kate was just 35 years old, thriving in her career and mother to a very young son, she was diagnosed with incurable colon cancer. This forced her to completely recalibrate and focus in on the things that really matter, what it means to live life well, particularly when you find you're approaching its end sharing the impact that her diagnosis had on her relationship, career, parenting, faith, and all the everyday stuff that many of us take for granted. So, Kate Bowler, thank you so much for joining me today. I would love to start by going way back to life, pre-diagnosis, to so-called normal life. You've described yourself, I think, as a productivity junkie. I like the story of when you had a stuffy nose and you you were taking a non-drowsy decongestant but accidentally took the green pill instead of the yellow one and trying to make yourself regurgitate this to keep working. And your husband, I think, beautifully put it. It looked like the real victim here was efficiency. T- tell me about pre-diagnosis, Kate? I was a
0: master of time efficiency. I mean, you could not give me a, a four-hour workweek book or a some kind of getting things done manual with a folder system in which I could not master my minutes. I was, um, I sort of treated every day like it was divided by 24 and then divided again by 60. And that that, that, that that should determine both what I should do and how I should feel about it. So yeah, it didn't matter if I was tired. didn't matter if I was sad. I've always really accidentally absorbed that, though I am Canadian, deeply American sort of Fordist labor (laughs) work policy, which is I can take a single action and break it down into the simplest parts and get it done. And um, that is uh, that has served me uh, so well until, of course, I never knew what day it was or what mattered because I was just so busy trying to get it done.
1: And then... And I think you know many of us yeah will have grown up with that idea of of being the good girl and being studious and think well I can just get through it with hard work, but then you you of course came across something where you could not work your way out of it and and can you tell us about about the diagnosis and about when this came about?
0: I had bought into a life that was very expensive, if that makes sense. Like I the decisions I made I was I had paid for very dearly, and then I just imagined I had the whole rest of my life to to enjoy it. I had spent. 10 years researching a book for the, um, it's like a history of the prosperity gospel, the idea that God wants to make you healthy and wealthy and happy. And I had gotten a PhD and I had finally been able to sort of stick the landing on the life that I wanted after a lot of infertility and a few miscarriages. I had finally had a baby and I had married my high school sweetheart and I finally had this dream job of working at Duke University and sitting in a library, I imagined like a turret with gargoyles, you know, like I had a whole, I had a whole plan that I thought I would be able to live out until I was 80 and and then very suddenly I was diagnosed with stage four cancer and it absolutely took my life apart because I had, I had no cancer in my family. I had no, just, I really didn't have a sense for the way that a single sort of domino can fall and then everything else falls after it so yeah there went the life
1: that i thought i'd carefully meticulously planned and then earned and researching into the prosperity gospel which i think in the uk we don't we're not that familiar with but can you explain a little about what this entails
0: yeah if you're um i mean there's a couple prosperity megachurches in the in the uk but but it is a a global message usually carried by christian 24-hour programming and uh, mega churches which is to say churches over 2000 and it has a very triumphant view of what a right believing person can accomplish in their time on earth so if you're a good person if you're a good christian you have the right kind of faith and the right kind of faith is that you have to speak positively and think positively and then it's almost like those words sort of go out like boomerangs. Like all the good things will then come right back to you. So too all the bad things you might put out, like criticism or, you know, negative, negative self-talk or anything might come back to you. And really nobody had written um a history of it because it was well, it was honestly very difficult to study. Because if you try going up to someone being like, Are you a prosperity believer? They'd be like, Absolutely not. So I needed to, it took me I mean, a decade to kind of pull apart all the different themes, which were health and wealth and victory to account for the sense that God was on
1: your side and that life was a problem that you could solve if you were the right kind of person. And then, I mean, the ultimate irony of of having dedicated so much time to looking into that and then coming up against something where no amount of positive thinking or prayer was going to help. Was that something that, personally felt it's never not difficult but did that feel almost insurmountable
0: well I I had thought that I had been like such a careful intellectual and observer from the outside like oh look at me I write these compassionate histories (laughs) you know I uh you know but I'm not the kind of person who thinks that I deserve my life and um in those first few days and weeks of after the diagnosis I realized that it wasn't just that I was devastated but I felt almost outraged like that's something that it felt impossible that after all this that it could happen to me and then I think part of that is just kind of a the sort of accidental narcissism of pain right where you just it it always seems like it's going to be somebody else it doesn't always feel like the odds are like somebody else is going to have the horrible problem and we'll just skate through and and then it was me and I um I had had accidentally, I think, absorbed some of the main tenets of the prosperity gospel, which is this really deep individualism that I was always supposed to be able to do it on my own and like faster, better, stronger, that kind of attitude. And also that if I was positive, that it was very similar to self-mastery. And this is part of these American ideologies of I mean, really exhausting positivity, but I was so susceptible, so susceptible to it. I still am, Helen, I, I won't lie to you. I, I just like, I <laughs> have such a desire to like outperform problems by just like muscling through and being cheerful about it. And then it was the fall and I was supposed to die that June. And um, it felt like a like a leveling, like it took apart all the expectations of what I thought especially mostly, not just because I was ambitious and I absolutely loved, just loved being ambitious, but because I had this little smushy baby and, and he smells like strawberries and, and he's like giant fish eyes and, and he's like a little evil. Like even already <laughs> as a baby, I knew he was kind of evil. And, and how old was he at the time? Ah, uh, he was barely two and I was like, no, I mean I count my life by your days and years and this is absolute crap. Like this is not enough time to to be your mom. And so it's not it's not possible.
1: Whatever's happening now it's 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 not possible. I've heard you speak really movingly as well about the financial impact and and worries and pressure and you know in the UK we are very fortunate to have an NHS but, but I know that in the US that this is it becomes a whole family affair and a whole family concern. And and what sort of a position were you in financially at this point?
0: Yeah, I was caught in a very strange and um, well, maybe it's not even that strange position is um, I'm Canadian and the drug I would need was not available in my hometown of Winnipeg, which is not a small place, but it was really being tested in the United States mostly. So it's the only place I can get it is the States, but the States are very... Um, wildly punitive. I mean, that medical bankruptcy is one of the primary, if not the primary way that people lose everything here. And so I went from, I mean, we were all so grateful that there would be a drug that I could try that would work. But in the meantime, everyone would have to appraise their homes to potentially pay to save my life. And I knew then that if it didn't work out, it wouldn't simply be that they lost a a wife or a daughter, but that that I had bankrupted them on the way down. I experienced tremendous shame, frankly, about being like the bad
1: thing that happened to everybody. It's so much to be dealing with and all of these different approaches at the same time. How did you begin to compartmentalize or come to terms with the idea that you couldn't outrun or outperform your humanness. Well, I'm a historian. And so I I just, uh, I think I needed
0: to understand the story that I felt trapped inside. And I've always loved studying things that feel a bit silly at first, but really aren't really. And so I love studying cliches and little sayings that people have. And for a long time, I was studying the sort of cliches that people gave me to say that it was always going to be okay. So I was studying phrases like, you know, everything happens for a reason, or what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, as opposed to, I I love when people say things like, what doesn't kill you will probably try again tomorrow. Like those things (laughs) always made me really, really happy. But as I was trying to figure out then not just how to survive, but how to move forward with a life I didn't choose, I became really interested in the, in those cliches, like those formulas about how to live. And turns out we're just drowning in them. Like part of the solution, I'm just going to tell you, uh, Helen, that there's a solution to how to live. It's very simple. You just have to be present. The mindset people are like after us. They're just going to tell us that we need a positive mindset. That's what cultivates resiliency. Or, you know, you only live once, YOLO, make a bucket list find your passion slash side hustle, always involves essential oils on Instagram, um, <laughs> that there's like a solution to this. And, or, I mean, the one in the United States that always drives me bananas is best life now, which is a term now that is pretty much every single contestant of like, do you have Paradise Island? Is that the one that you have that I got really obsessed with? Uh, Love Island, maybe. Love Island. Oh gosh, yeah, Love Island. Similar. I, that was a dark time for me. I watched a full year. <laughs> <laughs> Every episode. You're welcome. Yeah, I was very invested. Yeah. The States has The Bachelor. Canada has, oh gosh, every derivative. It's so great. But every version has a contestant that's explaining how they're there to live their best life now. And it's, of course, a phrase that was developed by a televangelist, Joel Osteen, 20 years ago to describe that feeling that you're like always on the cusp of mastering your life. I realized I had stopped being honest when I didn't have the right... I I couldn't access the right language to account for how scared I felt, how overwhelmed I felt, how much all that made me feel like a loser in a culture of winners. So, yeah. So studying those cliches and then trying to figure out my way out to live inside of some different
1: categories, I think, is what just what helped me the most. You say struggling to find that language, but I I mean, to give you some credit, I mean, we don't really have that language so much. It's, It's, you know, I think... To attempt to bring your your you know academic rigor and and to look at it from that way seems an incredibly noble pursuit. When I feel as though uh, I would feel very angry. I mean, you would just feel the the whole sort of idea of toxic positivity of being told, well, you should be feeling this, or why aren't you just feeling this, or can't you just think your way out of it? I mean, it's enraging.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I think I didn't I didn't even know to feel angry because I was so busy trying to trying to get along. I mean, I wanted to be, I was I was scared of dying, but I was scared of, um, I was mostly scared of just losing all the, the relationships and the loves that I had. So I wanted to try to be as lovable as possible. And when you're in pain, you're like, it is hard to remember your friend's, ex-boyfriend's, new girlfriend's problem, or, you know, remember people's birthday and just like not be a garbage friend. And so I, I found that I was hiding a lot, I, you know. may part because when I said things, I really felt it made people sad. You know, I would say, I really have, I really have no idea if this is going to be enough, or um, I'm so scared right now. And in my gentle defense, like I didn't actually even have a place where it would even make sense to say those kinds of things in the medical system in which I was spending so much of my time. Doctors and I've met so many beautiful doctors since, but the doctors I had would just give me this sort of like blink, blink every time I was trying to say something like, "Hey, just like just checking, am I gonna, am I gonna die by the end of the summer?" And you know, and I would obviously like tear up, but the tearing up made everyone look like they wanted to crawl into a tar pit or push me <laughs> in a different one. So I found there there are very few places where I could even practice saying things that didn't feel morbid or culturally unacceptable.
1: And w- when I've, I've heard you speak about imagining almost two futures, you were constantly having to think, well, if I am here, we'll be doing this. And if I am not here, w- the family should should be doing this. That's a huge load as well. Did that take its toll?
0: Yeah, the two, I just, I had like a two-track mind at all times. One was like, okay, my life is headed off a cliff. And the other was trying to make plans, like any kind of normal, like what, what do you want to do next Christmas or, but I've always had such tight scan intervals that it felt really hard to, I mean, six months, I always had like two or three months. And, um, and yeah, in all of that, it, it made uh, it really it felt like the future was this language i just didn't speak anymore and yet i had to figure out how to be both people both people the kind of person who's the loving person who doesn't imagine invincibility and therefore is realistic then this other thing which is i think maybe all of us which is we expect to live you know and we want and hope and we want to make dreams and you know go see the pyramids or something I heard they're really tall. I mean, they're super, <laughs> I heard they're very tall. Kind of big.
1: I heard that Yeah, too. I heard it's yeah. a
0: whole thing. Seven of Wonders yeah. or something. Sandy.
1: Um, yeah. Very <laughs> sick. yes.
0: That should be my Yelp review, my like Google review at the end. Just, like, it's like Pyramid really sandy. very sandy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and um, you, uh, you've also, I found it fascinating, you described something about other people's almost emotional tourism that when a stranger will ask so you have colon cancer, you stop being you and are almost a reminder of their mortality. So that's you are having to take on other people's um, yeah, fears as well. I felt like I was wearing one of those giant sandwich
0: boards that people wear where it says, like, the end of the world is near, and they're like
1: ringing a bell. <laughs> but
0: meanwhile, We're I was like, just trying to be. <laughs> oh, not again. <laughs> I avoid this corner for this reason. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, meanwhile, I'm just at a kid's birthday party. But I do think it's, um in part, it's, I think we just do it all the time for lovely normal associational reasons like oh hey you're from this oh I like your sweater that you know we just play oh that reminds me of associational games and it builds intimacy until of course the thing that you remind people of is like oh no my aunt died of this and oh and like oh we were all devastated you're like oh no I don't have another anecdote to counter that
1: with <laughs> hey pyramids uh, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah And you talked about bucket lists and the pressure this can put us under. What's your view on the bucket list now?
0: I had this um, series of very lovely mental health professionals. It always seemed like all of them were named Caitlin and they were all just very encouraging and really wanted me to understand what dreams I might yet have and encouraged me to make a bucket list. And um, like, do I wanna, you know, uh, try hot air ballooning or Read every work of great fiction or and um, and so immediately my historical brain is like, what is that term? When was it popular? <laughs> and you know, Just research, research, research. And of course, the the desire to kind of be on, you know, a hero's journey where you go out and you venture and you figure out parts. you like you're kind of tested against the world is a has a long history and is a big, beautiful feeling. But the kind that's taken hold and mostly honest, it turns out that the phrase bucket list has really only been popularized mostly out of after the 2007 Morgan Freeman movie called The Bucket List. Oh, my goodness. Where, yeah, people are like, oh, my gosh, that's that's a whole thing I didn't realize I was doing. And <laughs> they um, and it's, you know, it becomes this kind of set of experiences that people want to check off, like, you know, restore a vintage car or something. And the problem, of course, especially in its, its modern form, is we have this social media age in which we're already playing show and tell anyway. So everybody always seems to be take. I mean, in the, in the United States, the middle-class family has this like, and then I must take my kids to Disneyland or every anniversary you're supposed to like clutch your partner and look soulfully into the camera and be like, you are my everything um, about your anniversary as if everybody is having these life completing experiences. But the problem of course, is that it becomes a kind of experiential capitalism where you can sort of collect the whole dozen and you'll be the person you always thought you would be. And it's a painful thing when you start, you know, I, it took me a bit, I was like trying to write around how I was, why it felt so incomplete. And I, you know, I realized like, oh, it's, it's a lot easier to count items than to really know what counts. And what a strange thing that is. Like if I made a list of the things that were most beautiful, most meaningful, one of them would just be the fact that my son who is now seven refers to the bed as the snuggle zone and like that slays me (laughs) he's like can we can we just head out to the snuggle zone is a normal (laughs) normal sentence (laughs) and like it's the feeling like you're in the middle of a moment and not just having a bunch of minutes and and the things that really do make us feel full would never make a list and even if they did they're so lovely that we would just want more because I think that's just the nature of love is there's just it makes it it stirs in us a hunger. So even if I did make a completely unbelievably great bucket list at the end, I think I would still feel like, oh, if it was beautiful, now what?
1: Yeah. And I think when you were thinking about bucket list and talking about it and you talked about uh, infertility and miscarriage and And the idea of having a bigger family, was that something that you had to to talk about and you had to to come to terms with the fact that that is, is not a possibility now? Is that right?
0: I think it took me a while to realize that there was like befores and afters in life and that I was in an after. And I wouldn't really be able to go back and that there are things that are lost. And for me, I don't have the family I imagined I would have. I don't have the life I imagined I would have. I... I always imagined I would have a zillion graduate students and like oversee an enormous feudal pyramid of very grateful (laughs) academicians and, and that I would have, you know, two kids. And yeah, I, I think I, I had imagined a future where there was, uh, more. I don't know. It's been hard. It's been hard for me to say things like, um, that some things, uh, we can never go back or, But, um, or for instance, like, you know, when I, when I was making my way through the clinical trial, I realized that a lot of the clinical trial protocol. So it turns out that a clinical trial, I had thought I had equated it in my mind with the words cutting edge medicine. Oh, I'm getting like the best. And I didn't realize like, oh, you're not getting the best. You're just getting the newest. And they're testing it with a set of experiments. And you're part of that experiment. And if you are, you really don't get a lot of choices. So when I realized that a lot of the treatment I'd had was genuinely for no reason at all. I mean, just that it went for me, that was part of an experiment, that all kinds of things I'd lost, nerve function, the the ability to like, you know, feel the tip of my nose or my ears or... Like all kinds of pain was genuinely for no reason. I, uh, I realized I had, not, I'd, I had not learned to say things like, um, you know, that some things are just lost. And there's a version of my life that is gone. And, um, and not just gone, but some of it was taken. And that was like a hard distinction, I think, for me to, to like wrap my brain
1: around. Like it could have been different is a hard, that's a hard sentence yeah that's really hard and and I wonder what your relationship with faith is like you you write really movingly um you talk about bishop will a bishop friend who is angry at god I guess for having to preside over the funeral of a small boy and that this shouldn't happen it isn't fair and you know none of this is fair the idea of things are taken from a young mother how do you square that peg yeah oh my gosh
0: Everyone should have a bishop friend. They're very portable, they can go anywhere, is good at weddings and funerals. (laughs) But what what he said in that moment when he was talking about presiding over a funeral of that little kid was when he said, um, he looked up at God and he said, um, don't make me go out there and lie for you again. And that was such a a perfect thing to say because um, there's some things we go through like we have to live in such an extended as a like as a person of faith, I believe that uh, God is drawing us into a story about love in which God saves the world. But in the meantime, not today. And, uh, <laughs> and when Will was kind of saying that about um, like there are some hard things that only God could make true because they're not true right now. That like losing a kid or losing your health or not being sure how to put your life back together, that there are things that we, that we live in hope for, but just naming the not yetness of it. And also just naming the fact that it takes a lot of courage to have hope at all. And I think I've always loved that about, um, about some people's faith and the way that, um it allows there to be more mystery than the kind that I had gotten used to that like maybe faith wasn't really all about certainties. Like I believe this and I'm locked into that, but maybe it's um, at least to me, it's been an, an experience of love, love of God and love of other people. But, but that in the mystery, we have to be willing to stand up close to really hard things
1: and say, if that's true, only, only God could make that true. I, I, don't know how I feel about all of those things. It's wonderful to hear and that it sounds very generous of you to still still feel that sort of warmthness.
0: Oh, don't worry. I've also been a giant ball of rage. Fear not. There has been all kinds of rage. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I think so. uh, If I'm going to give you my most awkward, honest answer, it's so I feel also like I just want to create disclaimers now. Uh, Like I'm a historian (laughs) and I don't talk about my feelings as much as I'm going to ask a history question next day, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like, please let me start a sentence with, it was the late 19th century. But like right after I got sick, I woke up from my surgery and I felt um, this very bizarre amount of love. Like it felt very weird that I felt so loved. I felt loved by other people, but I really felt loved by God. And I don't really know how to describe that in a way that isn't weird. So that was kind of a strange moment for me because I felt that so intensely for like quite a few months and I so much so that I felt very uncomfortable with it I like I would like quietly ask friends be like I'm feeling very loved that doesn't feel very rational just want (laughs) to check if there's something wrong with me but um I guess that's partly why I don't have um I've sort of let go of a lot of my like faith formulas this plus this equals this because I have found that some of the only things that made life bearable honestly came as a surprise to me so I'm just like I just so the only Trust I have is that, um, is that sometimes our day has to be full of miracles, which is other people making things that are impossible feel somehow okay.
1: And I was interested as well that a psychologist told you that fear had been a friend to you and has helped you to be vigilant, but that it, it also had a place and there should be perhaps a time frame on that. I wonder what your relationship is with fear and. And I guess how helpful therapy has been to you as well. Well, I'm going to come out swinging in favor of paralyzing fear. It's been a gift. Just
0: joking. It's been really too much. And so I guess that was kind of because I, I, you know, I have a really scary situation where I very frequently have to be scanned and um, imagine that that I don't get a lot of certainties. And so um, I guess I was, I was trying, I was struggling with how to live with that much vigilance. And, you know, I have a wonderful psychologist and he was like, "Oh, Kate, like, yeah, just like you said, it's it's a wonderful friend to you. It's helped you um, stay alert. And in my medical situation, it's helped me make some game time decisions that frankly saved my own life more than once. But you can't live in a state of hypervigilance forever. At some point, if you feel the edge of the cliff, like you have to be able to take a couple steps back and give yourself permission to live there without constantly scanning the horizon. So that has been um, partly why I decided, I really committed to um, more therapy, frankly, around um, all the medical, I didn't realize it was medical trauma, but I'd had so many surgeries that I had a lot of memories and um, difficult things associated with what I'd been through. So I realized, oh, bless you, continue therapy, thank you, to like undo some of the effects of it. (laughs) There we go. I, it just turns dark after a bit if i don't move around um, Oh, okay <laughs> <laughs> it
1: just goes dark. <laughs> one second. Um, are you just having a little dance <laughs> yeah
0: just one moment please i was
1: like um this is part of my religious experience thank i like it but yeah, yeah I'm glad it was with us in the room um and t- <laughs> t- tell me about so yeah the physical toll that that surgery and and your illness has had yeah. How does one begin to cope with that? Do you do you have advice for people going through similar or at the beginning of a similar journey?
0: Yeah. I'm on my ninth belly button and I have to admit they've been getting oh, worse. <laughs> they've just been getting so much You're worse. Like, come on. You must I, have practiced now. <laughs> that's exactly right. I took the advantage off of my last surgery and out loud I was like, come on. Oh. <laughs> so it was like, do you not even care? Um Well, I guess maybe the The thing that was hard for me to get used to was that, so at first you have to be very practical. You have to let things go that you cared about. Sometimes vanities. sometimes the ability to feel normal. All those things are real losses, but it's also like good work to to like pick them back up again is to start, you know, to like take a minute to feel decorative if you wanna feel decorative and to eat the ridiculous food that makes you feel like you didn't understand what muscles were for before this time. (laughs) And apparently they are delicious. And like it's our pleasures are not dumb. Like they're they're part of the joy of like being a person in your body again. And I think maybe that was what so much so much is taken away when you have to just be practical and you're supposed to be, quote, very grateful to be living. (laughs) And turns out what makes life beautiful is also like all the dumb, small pleasures so just i've been practicing trying to let myself be uh wildly picky about pasta
1: or good for you pinot grigio okay so best pasta shape right now
0: yeah yes wow thank you that's a very thoughtful question i do i do think gnocchi is an amazing is an amazing thing yeah. Originally
1: pronounced Kanoki, un- unclear, unclear. <laughs> like Pinocchio, it's fine. It's fine. Um, okay, yeah, that's really interesting. And I wonder, I heard on your fabulous podcast, I heard you speak to the Sesame Street creator. Yeah. My, this flawless segue there. But um, <laughs> about how we talk about these difficult things with children and talking about big feelings. And I'm very interested in how you... Talk to your son about your illness in in an age-appropriate way, like spanning the years now. Spoiler alert, he was two and he's now seven. And so, yes. How how has that changed?
0: I I have found that to be so tricky, but I do love reading the insights of, you know, experts in early education, just the way that they treat kids as, yes, as people with big feelings and that they need the same things. They need to feel safe. And yet they also need to know that we don't always get to control everything in our lives and so you know my and also they're just they're so smart like they really know and so I think the biggest thing I can communicate all the time to him is like deep deep love and so much permission and being honest that uh that some things didn't go the way I hoped like for instance he's saw, he's saw, I have like a lot of scars on my um on my like, torso and stuff, and every time he sees one, he goes kind of like, "Oh no," like he know, like he knows something is like, he knows something is wrong, and so, <laughs> I mean, other than sometimes I pretend that I didn't realize they were there and I was seeing it for the first time, <laughs> and then we we both laugh and laugh, <laughs> like, "Oh no, what happened here?" But I'm. I, uh, you know, and I bought like anatomically correct like things with organs in them so I can say, uh, you know, hey, sometimes bodies make mistakes. And this last time my liver made a mistake and so they had to take this part out and and like that, this is why they made this cut. And, um, but just know that like, that just because things are painful doesn't mean that we're not doing the right thing. That sometimes life is really, really hard, but all the good parts will be because we love each other, but it won't, it won't always mean that that everything works out the way we hoped so i i try to i guess it's kind of the way when they talk about um like how not to raise perfectionist kids like don't be results-based like be process-based like praise the effort i think that's what i like so much is like okay buddy we just got to be really excited about
1: all the effort we're putting in to be people today oh that's lovely and how does um how does he respond <laughs> He's... So evil. Should we go to the snuggles? He's, so,
0: <laughs> he's so funny. Yeah, he just wants to be. I think maybe the just always communicating that, you know, our bodies are homes to people, you know, and it's so uh, like what a the way we smell and hold each other and our ridiculous little quirks. And so, yeah, I guess I always just trying to communicate like deep safety even if I'm going through something hard. He does get upset if he sees like a hospital bracelet or something. But um, I always tell him like all about like, I met these nurses and this nurse was very funny and pretended to be a vampire because that made me happy while he was doing blood work. <laughs> like I just, I try to I'm like, oh, the hospital is full of people just trying to be brave about their life. You'd love it. I mean, not that part, but <laughs> but you love the people. <laughs>
1: That's nice. That's nice. And And may I ask what, I heard you talking um, about your liver and it's having to sort of do do twice the work right now. How are you? What is what is happening right now for you?
0: I'm on a I'm kind of like on the bumpy road next to the health super highway, but it's not that it's not, it's not the worst. I um I have scan intervals. I kind of have a I think what they call like a durable remission, but that they continue to have to be really vigilant because I am very prone to making new cancer. So. For that reason, I think that's why I love so much being able to try to describe life as a chronic condition,
1: because that's where I live. I love that. I love that. And um, no cure for being human. Such a beautiful phrase. I'm looking at it in neon lights behind you right now. (laughs) But uh, how, how helpful did you find the process of writing that book in terms of coming, I guess, coming to terms with the fact that nothing is certain, things aren't fair, but the world is still beautiful and worth it?
0: Well, I always, um, when I, I try to write like little stories, I try to write them almost every day, but just because the day always has something either hilarious or unbelievably sad in it. And they both kind of hit a note in my head, like, uh, that feels sort of the same. And so I try to write around it until I find the, the thing I felt unable to say. And that's what has helped me say things like, uh, you know. I guess there's no care for being human, or um, age is a bleeping privilege. Uh, aging is a bleeping, you know just things I was I was realizing um, that I had accidentally like bumped up a bumped up into a, a cultural script that I that I that I felt excluded from. So yeah, writing has been the way that I try to um, I want desperately, honestly, to make a little bit more language for all of us who need to be allowed to be no longer invincible. Not just sick people, just people.
1: And the relentless positivity that many of us butt up against. I wonder during the pandemic, do you think this has been a challenge for more people? I feel like on the one hand, the noisiness of everyday life and the busyness was stripped away for a little while. So more people had to sit with their feelings a little more, but then there was all the whole, you know, have you written a novel? Have you made sourdough? Yes. This sort of pressure and <laughs> the idea that we should be doing something productive in the midst of a global pandemic. Have you seen, have you observed attitudes change during that time?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, the United States was obsessed with their sort of endless sourdough starters or, you know, everyone's learning, like picking up their Spanish and taking on Swahili and I think uh we get these i think and it feels very normal that when the future kind of gets taken away from us we we sort of freight the present with too much and i don't know if we learned anything though because i mean other than i think we all learned that we're more delicate than we imagined and likely more contingent but i think that it's going to be really tempting for people especially as the world opens up more and more to want to do that thing where we then freight the future with all the things we missed in the past and uh you know i think it'll be really hard not to go back to gotta make up for lost time lost time what a phrase like we're just always trying to make everything do double duty and uh i hope everyone just kind of lets their life like it has to unfurl right and so much of it is just being able to be honest about the things that were lost so there's so much grief there's so much um loneliness and um anxiety. So I'm hoping people give themselves like a longer off ramp for feeling like they they don't have to rush back into showing that they have it all together.
1: Yes, absolutely. And history questions now. I have been I, when I I found it incredibly comforting during periods of sadness to look back historically and try and get that historical perspective. So I was really heartened by your work and and also by, you know, as a history professor how how helpful that is and especially looking back to I guess, the boomer generation and the real emphasis on this obsession with happiness? Because it's relatively recent, isn't it? This idea that, or or at least this idea of happiness, not Aristotle's idea where there will be pain, but this upbeat jazz hands idea. Tell me your your history (laughs) professor's um, take on this. Yeah, absolutely. I blame the 70s for almost
0: everything. So I think we could really (laughs) blame the 70s. But it was... um... Yeah, the kids who hit their teenage young adult years after the baby boom of the post-war years really did imagine that life would not just be productive, but be deeply um, meaningful and ought to make them happy. And this coincided with really and i think we should really question the usefulness of it but at therapy as our primary language in which we relate to one another all our categories are therapeutic we don't make an argument without saying i feel i mean the rise of therapeutic language has been an an, an aspect of how we have um taken on all of the weight of not not just being you know having meaningful lives but having happy ones and it's been I think painful for that generation then to uh, to get older, to not have every aspect of their life be to add up to. We had these um, terrible retirement ads in Canada called Freedom Fifty Five, where every person over fifty five had a convertible and a beach, and it just a like a like a road oh, wow. along the beach, even though the middle of Canada has very little
1: beachfront beachfront <laughs> highways by its very nature.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I think we're seeing kind of we're we're seeing a long experiment in what if happiness was the most important aspect of our lives for a generation who hoped not just to have the useful dutiful lives of their parents the pandemic I mean we the the, the sort of cultural amnesia around it I mean even even in American religion we um you know we do these big lecture series about meaning making and and none of us lectured the pandemics of the post-war years and and 1918, we didn't because we forgot, frankly, that our lives are so much more contingent than we were. Wow. We just we forgot because our our grandparents were the ones that suffered, and then our parents were determined that we could be anything we wanted to be. <laughs> and so I think we're in a moment of cultural reconsideration of how, um, of how happiness is often a beautiful and uh, capricious season, and and the rest is just trying to make lives beautiful in any other
1: way. Fleetingly beautiful. Yes. And is there a period of history where you think people got sadness right? Well, now you now you're just making me want to say the Great Depression (laughs) because
0: (laughs) I'm really only an expert in uh, late 19th century after. So I'm basically an expert in um, ideologies that came up in the face of of the very first bursts of rampant economic inequality. So in a way, happiness was always imagined to be the thing that happens if, if, if they found the formula to climb the ladder. So in a way I study the sort of persistent and rampant unhappiness of all mm-hmm. those of us who felt like our lives were supposed to be better. So I don't know. I don't even know if, um, if persistent pain is what makes us have a greater perspective on sadness. But all I know is that, um, is that, communities that have a stronger view of interdependence and have been able to surrender some of the worst parts of individualism they have to know something about sadness which is that we have to take turns not everybody is going to muscle through this is going to be as my friend Nadia Balls Weber says it's the rowing team you know somebody's
1: got to be able
0: to stop
1: rowing and everyone else moves forward keeps going and um and just the last couple of questions you've written very movingly about what's helpful for people to say when you're trying to support someone who's perhaps going through a really tough time or or ill and and what isn't helpful so i guess first up maybe a a couple of things that are not helpful that people would say that we could (laughs) learn from
0: oh sure um any sentence that starts with at least is usually not helpful at least you're (laughs) Uh, at least you had 10 good years together, <laughs> whatever it is. At least you're at a good hospital. Uh, at least it's terrible. Minimizing is so... Uh, we're trying to give someone the gift of perspective, but normally we're just telling them that we we don't want to feel the full weight of the pain that they're describing. Um, the other is the strong impulse, I think, to teach, where we've all recently seen a documentary we would very much like someone to understand the contents of. <laughs> it's so, like,
1: I was so like, happy. I had a for... podcast,
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's cool. And they always, use the, they always use the word research. It's just, it's so funny and not helpful. Yeah, I guess to just that free association of connection we we're talking about where we just remind each other of a time and we just death by anecdotes and just endless solutions. I mean, every now and then someone will give me like a like a smoothie recipe book. And I, I won't. I know that they're trying to communicate that I don't that I've that I've somehow caused my own cancer because of my diet. But I lack of smoothies. Yeah, man, those green Gosh. smoothie people really have a religion <laughs> that I, I'm not sure I want to join. But um, yeah, the the sense that there's a, there's always there's always a fix. And then we get really uncomfortable if there isn't. So just being willing to be up close to people that we just can't fix.
1: Yeah, I think that's huge. And what has helped? What is helpful?
0: I love it when people are able to talk about anything other than my terrible problem. It always makes me feel like a person again. I love it when people say things that suggest that they love me but don't need an update because they don't want to make me do it. It's wonderful to say, you know, just know that I'm really on your team here if you ever want to talk about it. But in the meantime, did you see the last season of? Blah, blah. It's great. I love presents, just actual physical gifts. I'm cold hard, cat, not cash, but I, I, do lo- <laughs> I do love it when, I don't know, like a friend gave me like a giant stuffed animal that looks like a succulent plant that has eyes. And it's That's for no cool. reason. It's not for a single reason, except that it makes me really happy. So just little things that, the other thing people do too, when they just put on a calendar in the future, like just to remind themselves to bring something up because you always feel like your thing's going to get forgotten. So I love those friends. Those friends are in it for the
1: long haul. That's really nice. In the spirit of, this was on my list of, ask Kate if you've got time on the spirit of things, nothing to do with um, (laughs) with illness. But I read that you were raised by parents who um, had a research interest in Father Christmas. And having attended, I'm also a big fan. I went to the World Santa Claus congress um, pre-pandemic and it was amazing and I met some of my favorite people in the world and um (laughs) how how did that play out at family christmas times
0: oh my gosh oh I I like my dad is the he wrote the world encyclopedia of christmas and then a few (gasps) subsequent books um santa claus a biography um a book on like wars on christmas where people use christmas for or against people and um I mean, I think we my family has several hundred ornaments that they purchased for quote research purposes. and it <laughs> Tax is still lovely yeah, it's, it's it's out of control. It looks um it would it would be hoarding if it weren't for um for for quote expertise i I love it. it's um it's the Christmas thing is one of my favorite bits of my parents' madness, which is that they are convinced. That um, my dad always says it. He's like, Christmas is not Lent. Like we don't need to be sad all the time. We need to be able to like bust out all the hospitality and ridiculous recipes and tradition and spend money that everyone thinks is a dumb idea. And I love, I love the feasting impulse. I think it's the perfect counterbalance to like endless seasons of same. Does he dress up? He one hundred percent gets very resentful when I bring out the many costumes that we've purchased over the years. And they Excellent. have those kind of enormous, um, you know, outside car dealerships sometimes. A giant, uh, inflatable things they have outside of car dealerships. Sometimes they're just like waving in the wind.
1: We yeah. have a lot of those that are Christmas related So correct, correct <laughs> Okay, good. Excellent. I would like your Instagram full of them this Christmas. That would be lovely for me. I accept personally. I accept. Thank you so much. I could talk to you for hours, but finally, I would love to know, knowing all that you know now with all your experience, what advice would you give to your twenty-one-year-old self about how to be sad well?
0: I, I love it, I love it when people say this to me where they said uh, say like, it it hurts because it's painful. You know, you're sad because it's upsetting. You're exhausted because it's tiring. You know, just letting, letting the reality of it take up more space rather than just constantly assuming that it's my job to muscle through.
1: That's very wise advice. Kate Bowler, thank you so much. A joy to speak to you today.
0: Oh my goodness, what a treat.
1: Thank you so much for joining us today. Please do rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. It really helps other people find us and helps us to be able to make more podcasts. The book How To Be Sad is out now wherever you get your book delights. And I hope you are doing okay today.